Well, good morning, church. Thank you so much for being with us today to seek the Lord together. Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Today we're going to start in verse 13, and today is June 13th, so I hope you're not superstitious. We're going to jump right in. Uh, Today's message is entitled, The Gospel Spreads to Galatia. We're going to pick up our study uh, today as we remember last week how we saw the leaders in the church of Antioch. They felt the Holy Spirit put on their hearts to separate Paul and Barnabas. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 13, the second part of verse 2, where it says, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So we don't know the details here. How did the Lord speak to them? Was there perhaps a dream or a vision that the Holy Spirit spoke through? Or perhaps it was a gift of prophecy where the Holy Spirit put it on somebody's heart to say, I think, I think God's wanting to send Paul and Barnabas on a missions trip. And so the church body, they prayed over them, they laid hands on them, and they sent them off. And they took John Mark with them as their assistant. Now if you look at the map, you can see how they traveled to the island of Cyprus and began sharing the gospel through that island. We read last week how the proconsul Sergius Paulus became a believer. But not because of the miracle that he witnessed, but he became a believer because of the word of the Lord that he was just amazed that God himself would come down and suffer and die on the cross to pay for his sin so that he could have eternal life. That blew him away. And so he believed in Jesus and became a believer. And now we're in Acts chapter 13. In verses 13 through 41, we read about the ministry in Antioch in Pisidia. Verse 13 says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now again, we're kind of left with more questions than details, right? What's going on here? Why did John Mark suddenly leave and sail home at this point? We can only guess because we're not told, but perhaps it was homesickness or perhaps it was disillusionment of what life would really be like on the missions field. But we do know that Paul was not very impressed as John Mark turned tail and sailed home. Later on in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are preparing a second missionary trip. And as they're preparing their team and making their plans, we read in Acts chapter 15 verses 37 through 39, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Paul didn't want Mark on this team for the second journey because he'd left them before. Barnabas did, and so they split up. Paul took Silas and went one way. Barnabas took John Mark and went another way. And we can see how God used this division to create two missionary teams instead of only one. And God is glorified in that. And yet still the fact remains that we're not reading about perfect people here. We are reading about sinners like us. Although Paul and Barnabas agreed on the majors like Jesus, they disagreed on some minors like should we give Mark a second chance or not? You see, your first fill in the blank if you're taking notes today. God uses broken people for his perfect work. And because he can do his perfect work using broken people like you and like me and like Paul and like Barnabas and Mark, 
God gets even more glory. God gets even more credit because he can take us and still use us for his kingdom and for his work. And so now back to Acts 13, this first missionary journey. John Mark is gone. He's sailed home. So now it's just Paul and Barnabas, but their troubles are not over yet. Look at verse 14. It says, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So again, at the map, you can see they traveled up from Cyprus, up to the region of Pamphylia, and then up through to the region of Galatia. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians, he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. So Paul says, the reason we came to you guys first is because we were dealing with health issues. There was some kind of health crisis that caused Paul and Barnabas to leave that coastal city in Pamphylia and go north up into the mountains in Galatia to the city called Antioch in Pisidia. And so Paul and Barnabas get to this mountain city and verse 14 continues and says, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. Now, for the Jews, there was only one temple there in Jerusalem. And that was the only place that they were able to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But anywhere throughout the Roman Empire that there were a group of Jews, they would have a synagogue and they would meet there weekly to pray and they would read the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and they would gather together. But they couldn't offer sacrifices there. And so it was here at the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia that Paul and Barnabas begin their ministry in this city. They go to where the Jews are gathering each week to seek the Lord. And so verse 15, it says, And after reading the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So they're given an open invitation. Hey, if you guys want to share something with us, then please do so. And so Paul's now going to give us a brief kind of flyover of the history of Israel as he comes to his point, all pointing to Jesus. Verse 16, it says, Then Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So Paul is showing how God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery. And then Israel had no ruler over them during the time of the judges. And if you recall, that was the, the time where several times throughout the judges it just says, and in that day there was no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. They were kind of led by their self, led by their flesh. And then you bring on Samuel, that final judge and prophet, and the people asked him to give them a king. 
So God gave them King Saul. And although Saul was kingly in looks, his heart was selfish, and he didn't obey the Lord. And so, verse 22, Paul says, And when, he, when God had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now, I think this is interesting and worth a little side note here, because God calls David a man after his own heart. And it's an amazing compliment. And yet still we remember that David was the one who committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he had her husband murdered. And when he tried to cover it all up and it didn't work, then he married her. And he tried to look like the Savior, oh, taking this poor widow in and giving her a home. That's the David that God says was a man after his own heart? It's amazing. And it's because David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was without sin, but because he loved God and because he desired to do all of God's will. Therefore, when David sinned, he took the blame. He repented, and then he sought and received God's forgiveness. And it's true for you and me. You see, this is how a man or a woman after God's own heart responds to their sin. We take the blame. We don't blame others. We don't make excuses. We, we take ownership when we mess up. We take the blame when we repent. And then we seek and receive God's forgiveness. It was so different from how King Saul had acted in his sin, in blaming others and making excuses and trying to make his sin sound like it was a good thing. Really, it's going to be better this way, Lord. David, not so. David, when he messed up, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. I blew it. And Lord, I don't want all the baggage from my sin, but Lord, I'll take whatever you give me. And God, I just want you to be my God. Have mercy on me. And so, even though David was not perfect, David's reign over Israel was considered the golden years of Israel's history. He was the favorite king. And Paul declares to the people in verse 23, there in Acts 13, Paul says, From this man's seed, from David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now all the Jews who were there that day listening, when they hear Paul talk about this promise, they knew exactly what he meant. You see, God declared to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. He said, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So this prophecy here, this promise of God, it spoke some towards Solomon, David's son, who would build a house for the Lord, a temple there in Jerusalem for the Lord. But this prophecy went beyond that. This prophecy spoke of how there was coming of a future king whose rule and reign would never come to an end. 
one who was like David in all of the best ways, and yet better than David, one whose kingdom would never end, one who would be called the Son of God, one who would be the Messiah, the Anointed One. And Paul declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of that messianic promise, that Jesus is the one who descended from the line of David. He is the one whose kingdom will never reign, and Jesus is here. This is why both Luke and Matthew in their Gospels, they give us the genealogy, the list of names, and he begat him, and he begat him, down the line, because it shows that Jesus descended from King David. Therefore, he is able to fulfill that promise of being the Messiah. So Paul continues in verse 24, and he says, After John had first preached, before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So he's talking about John the Baptist. And, verse 25, as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. In other words, John the Baptist made it clear. He said, look, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not him, but he is coming. And you should get ready. Prepare your hearts for the Messiah to come, because when he comes, I'm not even worthy to tie or untie his shoes. He's that much greater than me. I'm nothing in compared to him. And so Paul says in verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in Jesus, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Can you imagine what it would have been like there, listening to Paul's words? You're a Jew. You've been waiting for your whole life for the coming Messiah. And now Paul, he comes and he tells you he's here. God has fulfilled his promise. Jesus is the fulfillment and he is here. But the rulers in Jerusalem killed him. Can you imagine the excitement and then the betrayal and the horror as you hear that was it? He came and he's gone. We killed him. What now? But then verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. That's it, folks, right? That's where our hope lies. That's the power of God. You see, no matter what problems there are, no matter how we struggle, but God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the turning point. And so verse 31, Paul says, Jesus was seen by many for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Paul's saying, don't just take my word for it. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to many people. He ate with them. It was a physical bodily resurrection. And at one point, there were over 500 people who he appeared to. And they all saw him alive and well. And all 500 of them are now witnesses testifying Jesus really is alive. 
We have, we have eyewitness testimony. And so verse 32, Paul says, And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul's quoting from this psalm, Psalm 2, and he says this is speaking of Jesus, where God calls Jesus his son. And verse 34, and that God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep. He died. And he was buried with his fathers. And he saw corruption. His body rotted and decayed. But he, Jesus, whom God raised up, saw no corruption. You see, David wrote in the Psalms, he said, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And Paul's saying, David wasn't calling himself the Holy One. David was talking about that future King, the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus would not see corruption because Jesus would not be left dead, but he would be raised back to life. So Paul's point in all of this is to the Jews. He says, look, this was prophesied in the Old Testament in your scripture. God told us what he was going to do and he's done it. And unlike the several people in the Bible whom God had raised back to life from the dead, like Lazarus, right? Lazarus was dead for a few days, and yet Jesus rose him back to life, and he came out and he lived for a few more years, or maybe even a decade or two later, but eventually Lazarus died again. And so too with everybody else that was risen back from the dead. That's why Jesus is different. Because Jesus, he was resurrected, never again to die, never to allow his body to be decayed and to see corruption. But Jesus is alive today, and he is physically in heaven right now, and he has not gone back to the dead since he rose. That's the, that's the truth that Paul is trying to explain here. Now, what do you think the people imagined God would do with the resurrected, death-conquering Messiah descended from the throne of David. Perhaps finally rescue Israel from the clutches of Rome, those dirty Gentiles who have taken our freedom. After all, David was a man of war, and God blessed David, and David conquered all of Israel's enemies around the land of Israel. Surely this is now going to happen, right? I'm getting excited just thinking about it. And yet, God had bigger plans for Israel. Not to give them freedom from Rome, but freedom from sin and death. Paul says in verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You see, as a Jew, you had this sacrificial system where there were certain sins where if you committed them, then it told you what sacrifice you could then bring to the temple. And you could offer that sacrifice to kind of atone or cover up your sin. 
But those sacrifices could never take away your sin. It just covered them up. Then there were other sins that there was no sacrifice for. There was only judgment. There was nothing you could do to cover up those sins. Even there in the temple in Jerusalem, every single day, the priests would sacrifice two lambs on the altar, one in the morning and one in the evening. A constant reminder that they, the people, though they're God's people, His chosen nation, they're just sinners. They fall short of the holiness and perfection that is God. And those daily sacrifices constantly reminded them of that fact and of their sin. And yet, Paul says, for everyone who believes in Jesus, we are justified from all things. Not just the list of the smaller sins, but of all sins. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Our sins are forgiven and they're taken away. They're paid for in full. You see, to be justified is to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous in God's eyes. Our debt is paid. When God looks at a believer, He doesn't see our sin because our sins have been washed away. David puts it this way in Psalm 103, verse 12. He says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions or our sins from us. Amen, right? That's amazing. Paul continues in verse 40, back in Acts 13. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And now he quotes one of the prophets. In verse 41, he says, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Paul ends with a warning, because the good news is only good because of the bad news. You see, if anyone does not surrender to Jesus, then their sins remain unpaid, and they are still under God's judgment. Without Jesus, we don't have anyone or anything to pay for our sin except ourselves in eternity in hell. Paul reminds us that following Jesus is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. It's interesting that Paul's warning was a quote from the prophet prophet Habakkuk. You see, God shocked the Jews by revealing His plan to use pagan Gentiles to judge and destroy His people, the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. Habakkuk knew that the nation of Judah had turned away from God. They weren't living righteously. They deserved judgment. And he cried out to God and said, Lord, why do you allow our people to turn away from you? And God said, well, I'm going to do something, but you're not going to believe it. You see, I'm going to take the Babylonians, a nation who's more wicked than you are, and I'm going to bring Babylon in, and they're going to conquer and destroy your land of Judah. And they're going to carry you off into captivity. And Habakkuk says, I don't think we're that bad, Lord. Not bad enough for that. I mean, surely you're not going to use people who are worse off than we are to bring judgment on us. I don't get it. And yet now God's going to go a step further. You see, He's not just going to use Gentiles to judge Israel, but He's going to offer the salvation of Israel to the Gentiles as well. You see, in the eyes of the Jew, that meant God was offering salvation to a more wicked people 
than they, the Jews, were. And so God's warning to the Jews was, don't be caught unbelieving God's word. God will fulfill what he promises to do. And it's, a, it's a, a good warning for us in the world today. You see, God will judge each of us. Don't be caught as an unbeliever. He will judge us on whether or not we've trusted in Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 28, it says, Then they said to Jesus, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. You believe in Jesus. You see, we're so naturally inclined to a works-based lifestyle, and therefore a works-based salvation. We say, Lord, what do I have to do? I can do it, Lord. I'll sacrifice anything. I will man up and I will be who you need me to be so that I can get into heaven. And God says, here's the work I need you to do. I need you to believe in Jesus. Because the work that you can do in your flesh is not enough. Because even if from this moment forward you never sinned again, that would be great. That would be fantastic. And yet what about all the sin you've already committed? Who's going to pay for that? His name is Jesus. That's why you need to believe in Him. Those who believe in Jesus have been justified. Those who have not will spend eternity in hell. Please don't let that happen to you. God does not want that for you. Don't be found without Jesus. Now in Acts 13, verses 42 through 52, we read that this is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. It says, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. If you like to take notes in your Bible, that's a good phrase to underline, to continue in the grace of God. Because sadly, many of these Galatians struggled to continue in the grace of God. You see, after Paul and Barnabas left the region of Galatia, false teachers crept in, crept into this new church. And they convinced the Galatians that it was good they believed in Jesus, but if they really want to be spiritual, or if they want to keep their salvation, then here's what they need to do. And they brought them back under the law. They said, you need to eat like a Jew, look like a Jew, and live like a Jew. Don't touch that. This is okay. You need to do this. You can't do that. And they were brought under the law. And they believed that, well, yeah, we were saved by grace, but now we better keep it up in our own strength. Otherwise, we're going to go to hell still. You see, the burden still rested on their shoulders. It was still a works-based salvation. They were convinced they needed Jesus and something else to be saved. And so Paul wrote a letter to them, the letter of Galatians. And Paul says to them in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven 
preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul tells us this is a false gospel. A false gospel. Salvation equals faith in Jesus plus anything. It's a false gospel. You see, we're saved by believing in Jesus. Not by believing in Jesus and getting baptized. Or believing in Jesus and going to church. Or and reading your Bible. Or and whatever it may be. Now, reading your Bible, going to church, getting baptized, those are great things. In fact, they're commands. And yet, we do not do those commands in order to get into heaven. We do those commands because we are already saved. We do those as a response to the fact that God has already saved us. Not as a way to earn our way there. Notice that Paul says that even if you are visited by an angel who reveals some spiritual truth different from what God's Word says, don't believe it. There are several cults who would never have started if they heard Paul's warning here. They have a spiritual experience and they hear something give them some revelation. It doesn't quite line up with God's Word, but God must just have changed His mind. No. God's Word will stand for all eternity. It will never fail. And so if you have some person tell you, this is from God, or you have some spiritual dream or vision, you see an angel from heaven give you some truth, but it doesn't line up with Scripture, that's it. Write it off. Because it's not from the Lord. It's not of Him. One of my favorite verses regarding this whole idea of continuing in the grace of God, is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. It says, For by one offering, He, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The He in this verse is Jesus. Jesus is the He. The, those who are being sanctified, that's the church. That word sanctified is like the word holy in a verb form. We're the ones being holied. God's making us more and more like Him into His own image, right? And the one offering is the cross. For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Therefore, this verse tells us that through the cross, Jesus has perfected forever the church perfected forever think about what that means you see for me i knew that i was saved by god's grace but i still had this mental idea of i had a percentage of holiness before god and on my good days where i read the bible and i prayed and i walked in the spirit man i felt like 70 percent holy standing before god right but then on the bad days where I skipped my devotional time and I gave in the temptation and I felt like a loser, I'm like, oh, I'm maybe 20% holy today. And, and my standing before the Lord was just, woo, right? 
based on my good and bad days. And then one day I read this verse and it changed my life. I couldn't believe it because it tells us that he has perfected us forever through that one offering on the cross. And the thing about being perfect is you're either perfect or you're not, right? And that's what holiness is. We're either holy or we're not. And it blew me away because this whole time I've been thinking, Lord, I'm feeling pretty close to you today. I'm doing really good. And so, Lord, here's what I want from you, right? It was all about my works. It wasn't about his one work on the cross. And I finally understood that I could lock myself in my closet for 24 hours and do nothing but pray and fast and seek the Lord. And at the end of that 24 hours, I might be hungry, but I'm not any closer to the Lord. I'm not any more holy in his eyes. Because through the cross, he perfected me forever. The day that I gave my life to Christ and I believed in him, I'm perfected in his eyes. That also means on my bad days, where I gave in the temptation and I sinned, I'm not any less perfect in his eyes. And I'll just be honest, that still blows me away. Right? But that's the power of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That's the power of his gift. That it paid for our sins past, present, and future. So that no matter what we do, if we have our faith in Christ, he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you're perfect. And you're like, a mm, little bit of Peter in me. Not so, Lord. Right? Classic Peter line. Not so, Lord. You see, I, I did that today. I got angry today, or I, I gave room for that thought today. And he says, I know, but I already paid for it. So in my eyes, you're perfect before me. Now, there is this other idea of holiness, right? Our position before God is we are perfect because we believed in Jesus. That's one and done. But our practical holiness, right? We should be getting more and more like him every day. But again, it's not because we're trying to be saved. It's because we are saved. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, bearing that fruit in our lives. And so whether we go and meet him today or many years from now, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, you're perfect. You're clothed in white, clothed in the righteousness that is not your own, it's the righteousness of Jesus, and he's clothed you in that. That's what it means when he has separated us from our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Amazing. So this is what Paul meant when he encouraged the Galatians to continue in the grace of God, to always remember that we've been perfected forever by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We cannot add to that completed work. Therefore, Praise the Lord. He gets all the glory. Now back to our text in verse 44. It says on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. What a sad picture. 
right? The Jews are God's chosen people, Israel, chosen to represent God to the rest of the world. And here we see a multitude of people, many of them Gentiles, coming to the synagogue to learn about God. And the Jews say, oh, you're not good enough to be here. And so they begin to contradict the gospel, to contradict the good news of what Paul is speaking because they are jealous. You see, that's what legalism does. Legalism perverts the gospel by adding laws and falling short of grace. Legalism perverts the gospel by adding laws and falling short of grace. And so then, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas grew bold, and they said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you've rejected it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Paul declares that the Jews chose to reject the gospel, and they made themselves unworthy of everlasting life. We turn that around and we see that anyone who receives Jesus, who chooses Jesus, they make themselves worthy of everlasting life because it all hinges on Jesus. Verse 47, Paul says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 49. And this prophecy wasn't just about the Messiah being a light to the whole world and the Gentiles, but Paul takes it upon himself and he says, okay, me and Barney, we're going to the Gentiles because you've rejected the gospel. And so even in the Old Testament, God talked about how he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth, even to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Not just in Isaiah, but way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, God was speaking to Abraham, and he says, And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How could every family in the whole world be blessed from Abraham? It's because from Abraham descended David, and then descended Jesus. And Jesus gives salvation to any and all who would believe in him. You see, this reminds us that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, planning from the very beginning to offer salvation to a lost world. There are some people who mistakenly think, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's the God of judgment, but the God of the New Testament, he's the God of love. No. God's plan from the very beginning, even Genesis chapter 3, talking to the serpent, Eve's seed You will bruise his heel, but he will take your head. He will conquer you. Jesus will come and destroy the enemy. The enemy being Satan. The enemy being death. The enemy being sin. Jesus will destroy and conquer them all and offer eternal life. The God of the old is the God of the new. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is called both the just and the justifier. Jesus is just because he will not let sin go unpunished, but he is the justifier because for anybody who would trust in him, he takes your punishment upon himself on that cross. And so here, the Gentiles are realizing God's love and mercy and grace for them. Verse 48, 
Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Here we see the predestination of God. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God chooses all who are saved. And yet just a few verses earlier, it was the Jews who had rejected the gospel and made themselves unworthy of everlasting life. The Bible teaches both very clearly. God chooses each and every one of us who will be saved. And he says, receive the gift of eternal life. Don't be caught as an unbeliever. Which one is it? Does God choose or do I choose? Yes. You say that doesn't make sense. I can't understand how that works. Praise the Lord that we have a God that is smarter than we are. Praise the Lord that we have a God that is greater than we can wrap our minds around. And I'm going to trust His Word over my understanding. We don't want to be a church that says, well, we're going to bring God and His Word under our umbrella of understanding. You've just redefined God. And He's only as good as you are, which is lame, right? Not good enough. All right. Verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. The persecution increased to the point where they had to leave. They had to flee this city, forced to move on. And yet even after they're gone, it says the word of the Lord was spread throughout all the region. You see, in today's passage alone, Paul and Barnabas suffered the desertion of John Mark as he booked it and headed home. They suffered the plan-altering health issues where they couldn't stay by the coast, but they were pushed up into the mountains. And then they suffered persecution, which cut short their ministry there in Antioch of Pisidia. And yet Paul would say, as he does in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul wasn't focused on the things he had to deal with. He was focused on the calling God had given him. And you see, this teaches us that opposition is normal when we serve Jesus. Opposition is normal when we serve Jesus. Just stay focused on Him and on His calling. Whether that opposition you face is spiritual attack or the opposition you face is just the fact that we live in a fallen world surrounded by sinners, living with sinners, and a sinner stares back at me in the mirror. We say, Lord, I'm going to keep my eyes on you and focus on what you've called me to do. Point others to Jesus. Look at how Paul and Barnabas respond to being kicked out of the city in verse 51. It says, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. You see, Paul and Barnabas, they understood their job was to share the gospel. But their job wasn't to get results. When the Jews rejected them and used political and social pressure to force them out, they shook off the dust and they went on to the next city. When we witness for Jesus, look for an open door, but don't force your way in. Look for an open door, but don't force your way in. Paul and Barnabas had an open door to share in the synagogue, and so they did. 
They had another open door when the Gentiles came and they begged them and said, would you please share this with us next week as well? And they did. But now the doors are closed. They didn't keep preaching the deaf ears, but they shook off the dust and they moved on. When we have an open door, take advantage of it. Point people to Jesus. But when people don't want to listen, respect their decision and pray that God will change their heart. Pray that God will do what only he can do in their heart. Verse 52. And the disciples there in Galatia were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Even though Paul and Barnabas were taken away from them, the disciples of this city were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit because they knew that Jesus rose again. They knew their sins were paid for in full, that they were justified in God's sight and they were heaven bound. Paul successfully planted a church of new believers. Lives were changed because of his ministry, but he didn't glory in how God used him. He didn't find his identity in being a missionary or a church planner or an evangelist. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is our boast. Jesus is our pride and our joy. If you only remember one thing, remember this. Jesus came and lived that perfect life for you. And he died on the cross to pay for your sins in full. So that if you believe in him and trust in him, he wipes away your sin. Separates it as the east is from the west. And he says, you're perfect. You are perfect in my eyes. Because you've received the free gift of salvation. And it's there for the taking. For any and all who would believe in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to leave your throne in heaven and to come down on this earth, to live among us, to suffer and die among us. Lord, to be buried for three days and then to rise again. Lord, we praise you that you have conquered the grave and you've conquered the bondage of sin and you've paid the punishment of sin all through your sacrifice so that anyone who would trust in you would have eternal life. Lord, we thank you that the moment of salvation, we are perfect in your sight. And we thank you, Lord, that that's also the beginning of your Holy Spirit beginning to work in our hearts, to begin to change us from the inside out and to make us more and more like you. Not so that we can be saved, but because we are saved, becoming more and more like you. God, would you help us to find our identity in what you have done for us, to boast only in the cross. And God, would you please use our lives as a testimony to point other people to you, to your love and to your goodness. Lord, we lift up those friends and family members, those neighbors and coworkers who right now have a hardened heart, a closed door, and they don't want to hear it. And Lord, we ask, would your Holy Spirit do what only you can do? God, would you soften their heart? Would you help them to realize their need to get right with you, to feel the conviction of your Holy Spirit, and to sense the gift of your love 
and sacrifice and offer of eternal life. Lord, we give you the glory. We give it all to you. And Lord, we just say, praise the Lord for who you are, for what you have done, and for your coming kingdom. Eternity in heaven with you. Lord, we thank you. We give our lives to you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together. Amen. He is worthy. Well, church, may we continue in the grace of God, constantly going back to the foot of the cross every day. If we can pray for you, we've got some men up front that can pray for you, a ladies in the bookstore that can pray for you. Otherwise, um, grab a, um, a notebook on the persecuted church if you're interested. tells you how to pray for each of the different countries. There's maps there. Those are free. Take those. And then on your way out, greet somebody else who is also perfected in God's eyes because of the cross. God bless. Have a great day.